I love that video and I love that song because every time I hear it and every time I watch it, I, I'm reminded that I get to be part of something bigger than just me. I mean, how sad it is to think you go through life 70, 80, maybe even 90 years and you just were living it for you. But this reminds us that as a congregation, as a church, as a body of believers, God has called us to a higher purpose. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And we're going to have a chance to be a part of that coming up on the weekend of December 15th and 16th as we take our Christmas mission offering. Our goal is to raise one half million dollars above our regular giving. Now our regular weekly giving is about $200,000. That means we're looking in one weekend to bring in $700,000. That's kind of big. That's asking God for a lot. But I know you've been praying about it. I know you've been thinking about it, asking God, what is it you want me to do? I mean, we've been kind of going through that as a family. Uh, the other night, my phone rang, and it was my dad. And he says, Mike, whatever. My mom and dad come here on Saturday night, but they go to, they go to a real church on Sunday. And, uh, uh, and so they called me, and they said, whatever you were going to give us for Christmas, we want you to give that toward the Christmas offering. And I thought, well, that's cool, you know. And, and uh, then Lars, we've, we've, we've accepted a very, very small Christmas budget this year uh, for our kids and for each other. And so for the very first time in 34 years of marriage, I used a coupon this week to buy Lars something. I got to tell you, it was exhilarating. I mean, <laughs> you give them a piece of paper and they give you 25% off. I don't know who came up with this concept, but it's incredible. You ought to check that out if you've never done it. But we're trying to, we're trying to pinch our pennies this year and and uh, in fact, I have a Mustang. It's only a couple of years old. It only has about 13,000 miles on it. We tried to sell it before and the market wasn't right. So we've got it up for sale again. And we're praying God will, God will get that up. By the way, it's a six-speed GT 5.0 convertible. 13,000 miles. Uh, buy a car and uh, give Jesus money. It all works out together, see. So, uh, you know, we're excited about that. And I, you may want to take a day and just fast. And just pray and say, God, what do you want to do through me? Don't do something that's easy. Do something that's going to stretch your faith. And I'm going to, as we're going to talk about this weekend, God's going to honor it. Now, don't forget next weekend is our Christmas production. And I, we will be so glad to get rid of these drapes. I hate these drapes, but there's a lot of stuff going on back there. They wanted to surprise you. I mean, you think next week's going to be a big drama? It is no drama compared to my programming team. I mean, that's, that's a lot of drama, those guys right there. It's about the reveal. It's about the wow factor. I'm like, you guys are so weird. But anyway, next week we're going to reveal it and see what's going on back there. Incredible production, word on the street. And uh, I just want to help you know how to go through this process because normally we give out tickets and you get tickets and you go invite people. But we're trying to kind of catch up with technology. And this year, we're letting you get them online so you don't have the mass chaos in, in the lobby standing in line. So the first thing you do is you want to figure out, hey, who do I want to invite? And you need to invite someone. I mean, think about this. 66% of people say they would go to church if a friend invited them. Two-thirds of people. How many people would come to a Christmas production on a Thursday night or a Friday night? How many would come on the weekend if you invited them? And there's a lot of people at the gym that I can't get to come to church, but a lot of them are coming to the Christmas production. So figure out who you, can come, who, who you want to invite, who's going to come with you, and then go to the website, and uh, all this information is in your bulletin, and you can go right to that page. You'll see it when you get there. And each performance, how many tickets you need, you just kind of click on that, and uh, it'll tell you how many seats are left. And so you want to get on there and take care of this. And, and this isn't so you're, you're not buying them, obviously, but this helps us make sure that not 5,000 people show up at one performance. We're kind of spreading them out. And then you can actually, you can actually print them or, or, or you can actually uh, put them right on your phone. You know, that's kind of cool. I mean, how, how 
how smart are we now? Got that little thing? I did that the other day when I flew somewhere. I was so confused I couldn't get it off my phone afterwards. But anyway, you know, so do that and then just print your ticket if you want to and then show up early if you're bringing people and you expect to sit together. It will be hard to come at the last minute and be able to find seats together. So I'm really excited about it and uh, this is always a time when God introduces new people to our church. And, and for you, as you invite, invite them, it may be the first step toward them uh, beginning this relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Now, this is what I know. I, I realize that every weekend I speak to a lot of people who've never made the decision to follow Jesus. You've, you've never stepped across that line. Uh, you're not ready to trust him with your life, right? The, you, this idea of surrendering your life to Jesus, uh, you, you just aren't quite there yet. And, and I understand the reason you're there. In fact, you're probably kind of stuck there. And I think the reason we get stuck and we just can't make the decision is because we're not sure what our life is going to be like after we become a follower of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, you're not really sure how your life is going to change. Now, this is a reality. Your life may be horrible right now, but at least you know what you're dealing with, right? You feel like, well, at least this mess, I have some idea of how to get out of this mess, but I don't know what's going to happen to my life if I make that decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. What's he going to ask me to give up? What areas of my life is he going to ask me to trust him? What's he going to ask me to change? And let me just go on record and say this. If that's where you are, you're kind of stuck. You can't make that decision to walk across the line. I want you to know I have incredible respect for you. And the reason I have so much respect for you is I don't think making the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ is something that you should take lightly. And I don't think you make it without putting some thought into it and realizing what you're doing. Because the reality is this, once you decide to become a follower of Jesus Christ, I will tell you this, your life is going to change. And you're not sure what God is going to do. And there are going to be some areas in your life that he's going to put his hand on and say, I want to change this area. Now understand, everything he's going to do in your life is going to be beyond your wildest dreams. It's going to make your life better than you ever imagined it could be. He's going to take you on an adventure that would blow your mind if you could get a glimpse of it right now. But I promise you this, things are going to change. In fact, all of us sitting here this weekend who've been Christians for a while... We could all give stories. We could all tell examples of times when God began to, you know, he put his hand on a certain area of our life and he began to work on our area, uh, that area and say, you know, this is an area of your life I want you to change. Or this is an area of your life that I want you now to begin to trust me. Or this is an area of your life that I'm actually going to ask you to give up because it's not good for you. Or I have something better. And I just want you to know when those times come, even as followers of Jesus Christ, regardless of how long we've been followers of Jesus Christ, our typical reaction and response is to resist, to push back against God, to debate with God, to argue with God. And the reason that we argue and the reason we go through these debates is because most of us have a pretty messed up perspective on what God wants for us as his children. And it's because, let's be honest, we have a tendency to see everything in life from the perspective of what we think we need, what we think we want to be happy, to be fulfilled. And because we have this kind of messed up perspective, instead of trusting God when he comes along and says, I want you to trust me with this decision, I want you to trust me with this area of your life, instead of just trusting God, we get zeroed in we begin to think about what we need uh, we, how we can be focused on that area and how we can hang on to this area that God wants us to give up and God wants us to change and we begin to look at the risk wait a second God why are you asking me to do this and, and let me think about the risk that's involved if we choose to do what it is that God is asking us to do 
And inevitably, if you've been a Christian very long, you get to the place where you begin to negotiate with God, right? You begin to bargain with God. And you say things like, okay, God, here's the deal. If, if this is what you want me to give up, okay, I know what I'm giving up. What am I going to get in return? And it's because when we think about the risk of being obedient, when we think about the risk of trusting God in this area that he's put his hand on, often the alternative of doing what God wants us to do instead of doing what we want to do, doing what God thinks we need to do to be happy and fulfilled, instead of doing what we think we need to do to be happy and fulfilled, to be honest with you, the alternative doesn't look all that bright from our perspective. And that's why we have conversations with God. We'll say things like this, God, I know you want me to give up this relationship, but God, here's the, here's the deal. If I give up the relationship, the risk is that I will be alone again. Or God, listen, I know you're asking me to trust you with my finances. But the risk is if I trust you with my finances, I might be poor again. Or God, I, I know you're asking me to stay in this marriage. I don't have grounds for divorce. I know I'm not happy, but that's not grounds for divorce. You want me to stay in the marriage. But God, understand this is the risk. If I stay in the marriage, it may go another 10 or 15 years down the road. And it still may fall apart, but by that time, maybe I've lost my teeth and I've gained 100 pounds. I'm not going to be that attractive on the dating market. You know what I'm saying, God? That's the risk that's involved. And because we get so focused on that area of our life that God has put his hand on, that area where God has begun to work, we say no to God. And when we say no to God, we often miss out on the goodness of God. But that's not the real tragedy. The real tragedy is this. When God begins to work in our life to say no to God, often is to walk away from the very thing we want in our lives. In fact, let me explain what I'm talking about by asking you this question. What do you want out of life? Have you ever thought about that? Some people are here 60, 70 years old. Some are 10, 15. Some of you are in your 20s. But have you ever thought about what do I want out of life? Have you ever gotten just a blank sheet of paper and a pen and thought, what is it I, I want out of life? And if you're here this weekend and you're single, you might say, well, I know what I want. I want to be in a relationship. I want someone who's going to love me unconditionally. I want to be in a relationship of mutual respect, mutual giving, mutual trust. That's what I want. Others of you might say, well, I want security. Maybe you came out of a background where you didn't have much security. Maybe you've been burned in the past. You thought, I just want security. Or maybe your, your lifestyle has been one of, of, of turmoil and stress, and you think, you know what, I, I just want peace. Others would say, I want a marriage that's fulfilling. Others would say, I want a relationship with my kids that really works. Others would say, I, I just want my family to stay together. And of course, a few of you men, you're so shallow, your answer would be, I don't know, I just would like great sex. If I could just get that, that, that would, life would be good, right? Now understand, when we say that, even the great sex part, you know what God's response is? God's response is, that is so awesome, that is so cool, because that's exactly what I want for you also. We want the very same thing. I want relationships that are meaningful. I want you to have a marriage that's fulfilling. I want you to have a relationship with your kids that is special, a family that's going to stay together. Even in the confines of marriage and a husband and wife, I want you to experience the great sex. That's a done deal. Now, here's the question Who's smarter? Who's smarter? Who's better at getting you where you want to go? Who's better? And more qualified to help you experience what you actually want to experience. And of course, the, the answer is God is smarter, right? In fact, if I went around to everyone sitting here this morning and I would say, who's smarter, you or God? Every one of us, I mean, we're in church, we would say God is smarter, right? God is smarter. Every one of us would say, yeah, God is smarter. The reality is we don't really believe that. We don't really believe that God 
is smarter. And that's why when God comes along and says, you know, you're in this relationship and you're dating this guy, you're dating this girl, but I'm telling you, it's not a good relationship. I want you to give up this relationship. That's why our response is, well, God, here's the deal. I, 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 I understand that you know a lot about relationships, but I'm wondering if I don't actually know more about relationships than you do. I mean, the fact that you want me to give up this relationship tells me and just demonstrates how little you really know about relationships because if you knew as much about relationships as I know about relationships, God, you would leave this relationship alone. And God's like, no, 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 you got it all wrong. That's not true. It's because I know so much about relationships. And it's because I know you so well, I know exactly what you need to be happy. And I know the relationship that you're holding on to, this relationship that you want really, really bad. I already know that relationship is not going to get you where you want to go. I know in the long run that relationship is not going to bring you fulfillment. It's not going to make you happy. Or you'll say, God, I understand you know a lot of things, but I'm not sure you know a lot about finances. And I'm not sure you know a lot about financial security because, God, if you knew a lot about finances and finances security, and then you knew my financial situation, you wouldn't ask me to give 10% back to the church. God, that's just silly. That's just ridiculous. That's just dumb. You wouldn't ask me to become a generous person. And God says, no, you got it all wrong. It's because I know so much about finances. It's because I know so much about financial security. It's because I know the grip of greed and what it can, how it can have on your life and how you'll never be like me as long as you're a greedy person. That's why I ask you to do the things that I ask you to do. You see, we got it all wrong. We often see God as kind of the big party pooper in the sky, you know, who just wants to rain on our parade. He just wants to crush our dreams. He just wants to keep us down, right? And it's because we get so focused on what we want for us instead of what God wants for us, that we forget who we're dealing with. We forget that we're dealing with a perfect, lovingly, loving, heavenly Father who knows more about relationships, who knows more about family, who knows more about finances, who knows more about politics, who knows more about the economy, who knows more about everything than we know. And because He knows so much, and because He loves us so much, at times, he's going to come along, and he's going to put his hand on something in our lives, and he's going to ask us to give it up, even though we think we really need it to be happy and to be fulfilled. And often when that happens, our reaction is, God, that just doesn't make sense. So I'm going to say no on this one. And understand, when that happens, it keeps us from experiencing the abundant life that Jesus came to provide for each of us. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 10, 10? I have come that they, who's the they? His followers, his disciples, those of us who are Christians. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The New American Standard I like a little better. I have come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. Jesus said, that's why I came. In other words, I didn't come. Sit up there, Caesar. We'll get to you in a second. I didn't come to rain on your parade. I'm not some cosmic killjoy who sits up all night trying to figure out more ways I can make your life miserable. To take away all your fun. To take away all your joy. I have come that you might have the life 
that you've always wanted. In fact, you and I, we want the same thing. We're on the same team. But you got to get to the point where you understand God says that I am smarter than you. And I'm the one who actually knows how to help you experience the life that you really want to experience. But you're never going to experience the life that you really want to experience. You're never going to experience the abundant life until you can get to the point where you can trust me. And this is the real tragedy. The things that we cling to, right, instead of the abundant life. The things that we cling to, the things we don't want to give up, the relationships, the money, the dreams, the goals, the plans. Understand, these things that we hold on to are merely substitutes for the real thing. They're merely substitutes for the abundant life. Often I'll talk to young girls, young ladies who are getting ready to get married and many times they'll engage and they'll come and they'll, or they'll pull me aside and they say, my fiance doesn't know that I'm talking to you, but I have some concerns about us getting married. Why? Why, Why do you have concerns? Well, we're kind of up and down and we're hot and cold and we break up and we get back together and, and uh, well, I'm like, well, well, why would you, I mean, getting married is not going to change that. Why, why would you get married? Well, I don't know. I mean, he's, he is a nice guy, and, and you know, at least, you know, he's got a pulse. And, and you know, and, and I'm like, well, you know what you need to do? You need to break it off. Oh, Pastor, that's so silly. That's so silly. Well, what are you looking for in a marriage? Well, I want someone who's going to love me unconditionally. I want a marriage of mutual respect, mutual love, mutual honor. Those are the kind of things I want, yeah. Are you getting that now? Mm -mm. You, you think you're going to get that later? No, I don't know. Then why would you settle for that? You know why? It's a substitute for the real deal. It's a substitute for what God really has for you. You know what it is? It's a security blanket. Your kids have security blankets, right? Maybe they have a stuffed animal. These stuffed animals, I mean, this is Caesar and this is Emma. My granddaughter Olivia, this is she's five. This is Emma, and uh, my grandson, this is this is Caesar, and that's supposed to be Darth Vader bear. I lo it looks like bondage bear to me, to be quite honest, <laughs> and I'm not gonna lie to you, that's a little troubling to me, right? <laughs> if it wasn't for the lifesaver, I, I mean, I, you know, but but here's the deal. Sit there, right there. For 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 Brennan and Olivia. You know what these things represent? Security. I mean, they're not security, but they represent security. I mean, big-time security. If they come to our house to spend the night, they usually do that once a week. And they don't have, if they don't have Caesar and they don't have Emma, it's going to be a long night. If we take them home the next day and we get halfway home, where's Emma? Where's Caesar? We got to go back because it's going to be a long day for their parents. In fact, last night I used them, had to get them back to them last night, went back to their house to pick them up this morning, and Brenda just said, I want Caesar. I'm like, grow up, you weenie. You're three years old. I mean, he's not really security, right? You know? But to, to them, they represent security, right? We, we all have kids. We've been there. Now, here's what's interesting. We grow up. And we still have our security blankets. We grow up and we still have our little stuffed bear, you know. We still do the same thing. We grow up, oh, it changes. We cling to our little toys. We cling to our relationships. We cling to our finances and our plans and our dreams. Not because they're anything in and of themselves, but they've come to represent something in our lives. They've come to represent security. 
And this is what Jesus is saying in John 10, 10. I have come to take your substitutes. I have come to strip away your security blanket. I have come to rip out of your hand your favorite little teddy bear. And in return, I'm going to give you the real thing. In return, I'm going to give you the real deal. But if we're going to get there, you're going to have to trust me. Now that's just my introduction. Luke chapter 5, if you have your Bible. As you're turning over there, I want us to look at a, to, at a group of businessmen who had to come to grips with this truth. And as you're turning, let me know, just let you know, these particular guys are in the fishing business, um, which is very, very popular uh, business in that day. But these guys are unique in the fact that not only are they fishermen, these are fishermen who have seen Jesus. They've already heard him speak. Uh, and, and in fact, they were present when Jesus performed his first miracle. They were right there with him in Cana at the wedding when Jesus turned the water into wine. And you understand, they were impressed. In fact, I'm sure they were blown away, and for days it's probably all they could talk about. But at that, at that time, they weren't ready to leave their boats. They weren't ready to leave their families. They weren't ready to make the decisions to follow Jesus. So they went back to fishing. They went back to what was security for them. Well, a few days later, they've been fishing all night. Jesus shows up in Luke chapter 5, and he's going to teach a while. So it says in verse 1 of Luke 5, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Now understand, these guys, they would fish all night, okay? And then after they fished all night, they would come back in, they would wash their nets, they would clean their nets, and then they would spread their nets out in the sun to dry. My guess, the worst part of their day. I'm sure they love the anticipation and the excitement of finishing, but having to do all the cleanup, especially after they've been up all night. They haven't had any sleep, they're hungry, they're tired, they just want to call it a day. But it says in verse 3, he, and that's a reference to Jesus, he got into one of the boats the one that belonged to Simon, one belonging to Simon, who we know as Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the, bo from the boat. Jesus understood acoustics. And he knew, well, if I'm going to teach to a large crowd, sound travels better over water. Guys, get me out in the water a little bit and they'll hear me. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. I mean, Jesus has finished teaching. He's like, hey, guys, while we're out here, let's go fishing. And Peter's thinking this, well, Jesus, I mean, <laughs> we already did that. In fact, we just spent all night doing that. And on top of that, we've already cleaned the nest. We've already laid them out to dry, you know. I'm ready to get some sleep. But it says in verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. And understand, that's, that's what Peter is saying, but this is what Peter is thinking. Jesus, you may be a good carpenter. You don't know squat about fishing. I mean, any good fisherman knows that you fish at night because when it's hot during the day, the fish go down deep. And at night, they come up to the surface to feed. And that's the only way you can catch a fish with a net if it's close to the surface. Jesus, this is not the time to go fishing, right? And we read that and we smile and we cluck our tongues and think, how dumb are these guys? I mean, who really wants to argue and debate with Jesus about fishing? He created the fish. He knows all about fish. If Jesus wants to go fishing, just take him fishing, right? But understand, we do the exact same thing all the time. We'll be struggling with our marriage, and this is what we'll say. Jesus, I know what you have to say about marriage, but if you looked at my marriage, you know, I might be smarter than you on this one, Jesus. Or Jesus, I know what you have to say about giving, but have you really looked at my financial situation? Or Jesus, I know what you have to say about forgiveness, but, but have you met my boss? 
I mean, Jesus, did you happen to catch my in-laws on Thanksgiving? I mean, are, are, are you in tune with what I'm talking about here? Jesus, I know you know a lot about a lot of things, but I may be smarter than you on this one, but you have to give it to Simon, verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so. Well, that's kind of cool. Because you, so, you say so, I will let down the nets. In other words, Jesus, if it was anybody else, I'd throw them out of the boat. But since it's you, and you'd probably just walk on the water and crawl right back in. Let's just go fishing. Get it over with, right? Verse 6. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Devides. These are Simon's business partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Now get this, from now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Now there's a reason I use this passage this weekend. I want you to understand, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the pattern for our lives. We begin this relationship with Jesus and we begin to walk with him and he begins to walk with us. And he gives us evidence after evidence, proof on top of proof that he can, he's trustworthy, that we can trust him. But understand, he's kind of setting us up. Because at some point he's going to come to you and he's going to say this. Now, you've seen me in action. You've seen the evidence. You've seen that I'm trustworthy. Now, I'm not going to give you any more details other than I want you to do this. I want you to do this and I want you to trust me. I'm asking you to go all in. I'm asking you to leave your boats, leave your nets, and follow me. Go all in. And at that moment, understand, at that moment, it is scary. At that moment, at least from our perspective, this is a huge risk. This is a huge gamble. I mean, we know what we have in our hand. We know what we're giving up. The problem is, we don't know what we're going to get in return. I mean, think about it. Let's look at it from Peter's perspective. Think about the risk. Jesus, I would love nothing more than to follow you. It would be my dream. I'm actually tired of staying up all night fishing. But Jesus, the timing's just not right because right now I still got 15 payments left on the boat. Or Jesus, I would love nothing more than to follow you. But you got to understand, Jesus, I'm a fourth generation fisherman. My reputation is at stake. Or Jesus, I would love nothing more than to follow you. But here's my problem. Here's the risk, Jesus. Let's say I follow you for the next two or three years and it doesn't work out. Well, what do I do then? I got to buy my boats all over again. I got to get nets. I got to get all the stuff I need for fishing. And on top of that, I'm going to lose a market share in the fishing industry. I mean, Jesus, you're asking a lot. At least understand the risk. At least try to see it from my perspective. There's a lot to lose here if I do what you're asking me to do. But think of it from Jesus' perspective. Peter, if you don't do this, Think about what you're going to miss out on. Think about this, Peter. People are going to name their kids after you forever. Yeah, Peter. They're going to build big cathedrals. Going to name them after you. In fact, you, 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 not, not to mention, Peter, I'm going to use you to change the world. Hey, Peter, people are going to read about you. Now, I'm going to, there's going to be this book called the Bible. We don't have it yet, Peter. It's going to be like the life and times of Jesus. 
you're going to be in that book. And people are going to read about you and they're going to be encouraged by you. Peter, you would be a fool not to follow me. But Peter's like, oh, but look at what I'm giving up. Oh, but look at what I'm leaving behind. You see, it's just a difference in perspective. And it's because when God asks us to trust him, all we're sure of is what's in our hand. All we're sure of is our present situation. All we're sure of is what we think we need to be happy and to be fulfilled. But God is going, but you got to trust me. You just got to trust me. You just got to trust me. You just got to trust me because I will never take anything from you that I don't replace with something so much better. You're just going to have to trust me. In fact, if you'll trust me, you're going to look back one day and this is what you're going to say. You're going to say, wow. Look at what God has done. I can't believe I almost missed it. I mean, if I look back in, on the times in my life where God kind of came along and said, hey, I want you to trust me on this one, and, he, and I knew he was asking me to let go of something I really didn't want to let go of, something that I really, I really wanted to hold on to, i got to be honest with you, looking back and seeing how it's played out, now I say, I mean, well, that was no big sacrifice. Don't get me wrong, when we were in the middle of it, it was our whole world. I told you the story of us leaving and moving here and starting life all over again so that we could begin the church here. And our world was turned upside down. It was all we could see. I mean, it was our whole world. But now I look back and I think, you know what? <laughs> that wasn't a sacrifice at all. In fact, that is the best, smartest move I ever made in my life. It was a big no-brainer. In fact, I can promise you this. As Peter, James, and John are looking down from heaven today, they're not thinking. They don't consider leaving those boats on the seashore a sacrifice. From their perspective, they're like, are you kidding me? That was just a good deal. That was just a no-brainer. And it's because God will never, ever take anything from us that he doesn't replace with something so much better. But you got to understand, when we come to that crossroad, when God says, I'm not going to give you all the details. I'm not going to tell you how it's going to work out. I just want you to trust me. When we get there, understand, the ball is always in our court. He waits for us to trust him. He waits for us to make the first move. Great example of this in Exodus chapter 4. It's Moses. Remember Moses, 40 years old, he killed an Egyptian, went and hid on the backside of the Sinai Desert, became a shepherd for his father-in-law. Now there's a job with promise right there, isn't it, right? For 40 years, he's been chasing those sheep around the desert. He's sick of the desert. He's had it. it you know, he, he wants to get out of the desert, but he can't go back because he's a murderer. And all of a sudden, one day he's out there, and, and there's this burning bush, and he walks up to it because it's not consumed. They got, and God speaks to him through the burning bush, and he says, Moses, of all the people on the planet, I'm choosing you to deliver my people out of 430 years of slavery in Egypt. You're the guy. And an argument ensued. Remember, Moses, I can't do it. Uh, I'm not qualified. I don't speak well. I stutter. Uh, I got a record. He began to go all these reasons why he couldn't do it. Finally, you get to verse 2 of, of Exodus 4, and God says, Moses, what is that you hold in your hand? And I'm sure Moses is thinking, God, you're speaking to me through a burning bush. I am confident you know what, what I have in my hand, right? But anyway, he said, well, I have a staff. But understand, it was much more than a staff. This is Moses' identity. Okay, you got to understand the staff, prime importance to a shepherd. A shepherd used their staff to protect themselves. I mean, they keep the sheep together, and if any animals came up to attack the sheep, that's what they kept the, that's what they kept the, sh the animals away from. 
He, he used it to negotiate difficult terrain. When he was tired, he couldn't just sit down like everyone else. He had to stand so he could see over the sheep, so he would use that staff to lean on. I mean, for a shepherd, it was his connection to life. It's like you men with your remote control. You, all right? you know what I'm saying? It's like you women on your cell phone while you're driving. They, the car will run without you talking on your cell phone. Maybe your husband hadn't told you that, but it's true. But anyway, it's like, I can't put it in. It's my connection to life, right? This is his connection to life, and God comes along and says, I want you to let it go. I want you to throw it down. And according to verse 3, remember the story, he throws it down, it becomes a snake. And, and God says, I want you to pick it up, by the way, while you're picking it up, pick it up by the tail. Of course, Moses knows nobody picks a snake up by the tail, but he's doing it. He's, he's a nervous wreck, and he picks it up. And it says when he picked it up, it turned back into a shepherd's staff. But this is what I want you to notice. Not just any, any, any ordinary shepherd's staff, because something happened. In fact, you look at the last part of verse 4, or verse 20. Of Exodus chapter 4. It's not referred to as Moses' staff. Look what it's referred to. It became the staff of God. Well, that's a whole different staff. That's the staff that Moses stood and lifted up and the Red Seas went. That's the staff that when Moses got it right the first time, he tapped the rock and the water came out. That's the staff that was made it possible for the children of Israel to win their battles. Remember God, the one story where God says, hold it up over your head. And as long as you can hold it up over your head. You'll be victorious. And remember the guys came and got on both sides of them. You remember that when you were in Sunday school? And they helped him keep that staff up. It was the staff of God. And I point that out because the very thing that Moses wanted to hang on to, the one thing he was sure of, the one thing that he didn't want to release was the very thing that God used greatly in his life. Now my point is this. When God asks you to trust him, the issue isn't what's in your hand. The issue isn't what am I going to give up? The issue is this. Is God trustworthy? That's always the issue. Is God trustworthy? I mean, it's hardly a week that goes by that I don't hear stories of Christians who spent years wrestling with God over little things, substitutes, you know, relationships and toys and money and dreams. And now they're, they're, they're totally exhausted. They've worn themselves out pursuing the substitutes, what they thought they needed to be happy and to be content, but now they finally come to the place where they're ready to say, God, I don't want the substitutes. I'm tired of settling for the substitutes. I want the real deal. I want the real deal. And I know God is patient, and I know God's loving. <laughs> but I wonder when he hears that, I wonder if God doesn't shake his head and think, well, man, it's awesome that you finally got here. But why in the world did it take you 10 years to get here? Why in the world did it take you 15 years to get here? Why have you wasted the last 20 years chasing your tail? Why didn't you just trust me from day one? If you would have just trusted me, can you imagine what your life would be like now? Can you imagine where you would be if you would have just trusted me from day one? Now let me just throw this out to you. And this is where we have to be careful. Because the older we get and the more established we get, the harder it is for us to trust. I mean, when you're young, some of you young people, you get this. When you're young, you're like, sure, God, I'll do that. I'll go there. You want me to give it all? I'll give it all. I only got $6.22 in my checking account. Why wouldn't I give it all? I can get that back somehow, right? We don't really care. But what happens, we get older. And all of a sudden, we have more to lose. And as we have more to lose, well, the risk factor goes up. I mean, you know, I talk to people all the time about giving. 10% of $1,000, 10% of a $1 million dollars, 
Well, that's a lot of money, God. I don't think that's very reasonable, you know. But it's not just true with people. It's true in churches. Man, when we were a young church, we were like gunslingers. We were just wild and crazy. We trusted God for everything. God, move that mountain. God, open that Red Sea. God, give us some land. By the way, I just saw the man wandering around who gave us this land. He doesn't even go here, but I think he comes and checks out every once in a while, makes sure we're still teaching the Word of God and being faithful. But somehow God laid it on his heart to give it. We just trusted God. Let's go build a building. We don't have any money. We don't care. We'll figure it out. Let's go build the building. Well, times have changed. We're not a little church anymore. Do you know we have uh, 350,000 churches in America? Someone just sent me a copy of a magazine that had us listed as in the top 70 largest churches in America out of 350,000. We're not a small church anymore. Multiple campuses, millions of dollars in property and assets. And so now God begins to speak to us and, you know, and says, well, I, you know, I got something for you, but you're going to have to trust me. And it's like, ooh, that's scary. There's a lot of risk involved here, God. We're going to have to do some giving analysis and some growth analysis and some cost analysis and some market analysis. And we need more charts. Lots of charts because charts drive Mike crazy. So let's just make him miserable. Let's just make him look at as many charts. He doesn't understand them, but it'll, it'll keep him occupied for a while, right? And I think the whole time we're going through this, this is what God is saying. Psst. Hey, you. If I was trustworthy with $10, I'm trustworthy with $10 million. You just got to trust me. You see, the real issue isn't what's in your hand. The real issue is, is God's trustworthy? And if God is trustworthy, it doesn't matter what he asks for. It doesn't matter what he asks you to do. But God, this is the best relationship I've ever had. Know all about relationships. Just got to trust me. God, I mean, I, you know, this is, this is about my whole financial future. I know all about financial futures. You're just going to have to trust me. I mean, think of it. Just like Moses, just like the disciples, we're no different. We've seen him in action. He's proven himself over and over and over again to us. I mean, just go outside and you'll be reminded. Think about this. We are living on a ball of dirt hanging in the middle of nowhere. Have you ever thought about that? Do you know we're 93 million miles from the sun? If we were 1% closer, you want to talk about some serious global warming. We would fry like an egg on a sidewalk in August. If we were 1% further away, a frozen tundra would not sustain life. On top of that, it rotates once every day. Every day. We've seen it over and over again. I guarantee you not one person here this weekend got up, got their coffee, went out on the front porch and said, I wonder if it's going to happen. I wonder if it's going to happen. Oh, there it is. Get dressed, kids. We're going to church. The sun's up. No. We see him in action every day. But he comes along and he asks us to trust him. And we argue and resist and push back. Because we're just so focused on what's in our hand instead of being focused on the faithfulness of God. Listen, the issue isn't the value of what's in your hand. The issue is, can you trust God? And the answer is a resounding yes. Here's the next question. Do you? Do you trust God? So, so what area in your life is God coming along and saying, I want you to trust me. He puts his hand on it. I want, I want you to trust me, you know. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ yet. and 
from your perspective, it just seems too risky to say no or to say yes to following Jesus. But let me say this: it is far more riskier to say no. Because you got to know you have a loving heavenly Father who only has your best interest in mind. And I'm not going to lie to you: to be obedient and to follow Him will cost you. It will cost you. But not to be obedient and follow him, it's going to cost you far, far more. I mean, what's God put his hand on in your life? What's he asking you to do? What's he asking you to change? You know, we've got this, we're on this initiative to relaunch our small groups and we need 400 small group leaders and we've talked about it. And maybe when we talked about it, oh man, you're kind of gifted that way. And, and your first thought was, you, I think I want to do that. I think I could do that. But get, then you get into process, Right? And as you process, you're like, well, I am very busy, and I'd have to give up something, and I'm not sure if I'm smart enough. And so instead of trusting God, you kind of talk yourself out of it because you know what you got in your hand. Or maybe God says, I want you to give generously. I want you to give a gift this Christmas that will just blow people's minds, something that's going to stretch your faith like never before. You know what I've often learned? I've learned this in life. Usually my first impression is the right one. When I see a need, usually my first impression is what God wants me to do. Now let me pray about it. Let me think about it. Let me rationalize it. And I can get it down to a really small percentage of what God initially laid on my heart. And I wonder how many times I've missed the blessing of God. Because I didn't just trust him. He would take care of the details if I would do what he asked me to do. Maybe it's a career change. Maybe God says, you know, I've had you right where I've had you for years, right there in corporate America, right there doing your thing, because now that they've paid for your training, I got a new calling for you. And you're going to have to trust me. Because in reality, if you do what I'm asking you to do, you're going to make about 10, 20% of what you used to make. And it's not going to be here. Maybe it's going to be in Africa. Maybe it's going to be in Haiti. Maybe it's going to be in inner city Raleigh. Don't worry about it. You're just going to have to trust me. But I'm going to open up venues and vistas to you that you never would have thought possible. You never would have dreamed of. And you're going to be more fulfilled than you've ever been in your life. But you're just going to have to trust me. Or maybe you're in a relationship. And you know it doesn't fit the biblical principles. You're not dating the person that you should be dating. This is not the person that God would want you to be. Maybe you're just different spiritually. Maybe you just see things differently. Maybe one's not even a believer. And God's put his hand on that and says, I know you don't want to be lonely, but you're going to have to trust me here. You're going to have to trust me here. This is not the right relationship for you. And if you do it my way, it's going to blow your mind. Would you be wise enough this weekend to say, God, I'm going to take my focus off of what's in my hand and I'm going to focus on your character and I'm going to focus on your faithfulness. I'm like the disciples. I'm like Moses. I've seen enough. I've seen enough proof, enough evidence. I'm just going to trust you. Let me tell you what will happen when you do that. Your fear will intersect God's faithfulness and you will experience God personally like never before. In fact, you'll discover that it's not about your own little world. Most of us here this weekend, it's about our own little world. That's why we're not generous. That's why we don't serve. That's why we don't think about the needs of others. It's about our own little world and what we got in our hands. But let me tell you, when you do this, your fear will intersect with the faithfulness of God. And he will show you a whole new world that's his world. And he will take you on a brand new adventure that has been designed especially for you. But you'll never see it. And you'll never, ever experience it 
until you get to where you can trust God. And even as a Christian, one day you'll check out of this life as an also ran. But you never did anything significant. I don't know about you. I don't don't want that. I don't think you do either. But you got to trust him. Let's pray. Father, I just, this is simple stuff. In fact, it's almost embarrassingly simple this weekend. But you, you take it, you do, you, you, you expand it, you, you wreck our world, you blow our minds apart with this simple, the simple truth of trust that it, the ball's in our court, it's up to us to take the first move. Even when we don't know what the outcome is, even when we don't know what we're going to get in return for what we're giving up, that you never take anything from us without replacing it with something so much better. May we get it. May this truth transform our lives. May we get really serious about loving people where they are and encouraging them to grow in the relationship with Jesus Christ. May we get really, really serious about the fact that we can reach a triangle and we can change the world. It happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem with just 3,000 people. What if we got single-minded and focused and trusted you for great things? What would you do in and through us. That's what we want. Show us this whole new world that you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen.